This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the New Zealand tourist who was stabbed in downtown Vancouver last week. His name is Jamie Hallows. He'd been uh, on a vacay here in British Columbia, and he was just minding his own business at the corner of Nelson and Granville Streets, and he was stabbed twice. There's an investigation going on. I've got Steve Addison standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Travis Prasad. It was a very kind of surreal and shocking moment. I think when something like that happens, you don't really expect it to happen to you. Around 8 p.m. on Wednesday, the 28-year-old backpacker walked out of his hostel in the Granville Entertainment District to get some food. He was standing near Nelson and Granville. Then all of a sudden, I just felt a couple of hits from behind. At first, it kind of just felt like it was just like a couple of punches. It didn't really feel like much. So I turned to go see who had actually done it and I saw a guy who was just walking away and I figured there's a bit of a drug problem that goes on in Vancouver, so I wasn't really going to instigate it further type of thing. Turns out Hallows had been stabbed two times. He took himself to the hospital for treatment. All right, 28-year-old tourist from New Zealand, Jamie Hallows, stabbed on his vacay in Vancouver. Yeah, welcome to Vancouver. Let's check in with Sergeant Steve Addison now, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Steve, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike, no problem. Can you tell me the status of this investigation? Yeah, it's still under investigation. Obviously, a very troubling case. Uh, anytime we have anybody uh, randomly attacked, let alone a tourist who's visiting our city from another country, uh, it's it's uh, incredibly concerning. So um, we've got a, a number of resources dedicated to this. We've already corroborated um, a number of uh, um, things from um, what Jamie has told us, and we're continuing to investigate. Um, we haven't made any arrests. We haven't identified a suspect yet, uh, and we know that cases like this do uh, often take us significant amount of time uh, to investigate it, to investigate, uh, but we're on it and uh, we've got a number of officers on the case right now. Okay, one of the things that impressed me about this guy is that he's very clearly telling the story, but you know, he's saying he's still continuing his vacation in Canada here. Let's listen to a little bit more of him here. So this is him describing the wounds he suffered here. This is New Zealand tourist Jamie Hallows. Let's listen. He got me really good the first time. It was actually quite a deep incision. It was so far that actually I felt it right down to my hip bone. Uh, And the second one was just a kind of glancing blow. It only just really grazed my arm. Steve Addison, have you been able to interview him? Uh, we have spoken and we may need to speak to him again. We're also looking for any any witnesses, uh, eyewitnesses, uh, who may have been uh, in the area 
at the time. Um, what he tells us, what we've heard from him, uh, is believable. Everything from um, what he says when he says that he felt like he had just been punched. That's a very common uh, sensation that people who have been stabbed uh, will tell us. They feel like it's just a punch and they don't realize that they've been stabbed until moments later. Uh, the fact that he turned around uh, and he saw somebody walking away, um, that he didn't know who the person was, that he believes it was unprovoked. We have no reason uh, not uh, to, we have no reason to doubt anything that he said. Right now what we need to do is we need to corroborate and gather additional evidence uh, that will help us uh, lead us down an investigative path where we can identify the, the, the person who's responsible for this and hold that person accountable. Okay, this is appalling when you think of a young person who has traveled here to enjoy enjoy Vancouver and something like this happens to them. And this has been a problem that has been flagged before by the VPD, this sort of random stranger attacks mm-hmm. in the city. Is that still going on on a regular basis? It is. Um, it is still happening. It's it, uh, Anecdotally, we, we feel like we were seeing a bit of a correction happening in that it's not occurring. These stranger attacks are not occurring at the same frequency or the same uh, level of violence as they were a few months ago or last year, and you'll recall some very high-profile cases. We had a, a meal delivery uh, guy stabbed um, in uh, uh, in Chinatown. Uh, the father, who was uh, tragically uh, murdered, stabbed in front of a oh. Starbucks downtown. A, a, a stranger attack stabbing in Yaletown that, re- that, that turned into a, a homicide. Um, obviously, very high-profile cases that gener- generated a lot of attention. Um, they, these the, the, the talk, the, um, these cases have, seem to have maybe fallen out of the news cycle a little bit in recent yeah. weeks or months. However, they are still happening. Um, perhaps, however, not at the same frequency as they were uh, a few months ago. And there's probably a variety of reasons why um, why that's happening. What could some of the reasons be? Do you oh, think? Sure. Well, we've made significant changes to our deployment model. We've deployed, um, we call them metro teams. They're quick response teams that can move around the city, dedicated teams that work both days and nights and move around to hotspots throughout the city. We've deployed more beat officers in places like the downtown east side, the downtown core, places like Commercial Drive. We made a number of high-profile arrests. You'll remember um, uh, the case of Mohammed Majidpour, a person who was responsible yes. for a number of unprovoked attacks. Another fellow by the name of Shaquan Kelly, who was responsible for uh, a string of uh, stranger assaults, arrests that have led to convictions that have resulted in jail time. And we know that when uh, these attacks occur, occur, quite often it's one person who's responsible for a string of them. If we can identify one person, put them away, that can often reduce the frequency of these attacks. And there's a a number of other factors that could be at play too. More mental health supports, getting back on track after COVID, Um, a stronger will at the courthouse to deny bail to uh, violent offenders, as well as other factors. Speaking of Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department, we're talking about the stranger, uh, alleged stranger attack on that New Zealand tourist the police investigation going on. Jamie Hallows, who was stabbed twice. And you, you talked briefly, Steve, about the investigation and appealing for witnesses. Let's have a listen to Jamie Hallows here himself here, talking, making his own appeal for, for people to come forward if they saw anything. Let's listen. There was actually a few people around me when this had happened. Uh, so at least if there's maybe some witnesses that could come forward, maybe they have a better identification on the guy. I really did not get a good look at him. Yeah, it sounds like maybe this was... You know, a guy came at him from behind, and he didn't get a good look at at the uh, the guy. But there were people around, right? Did you say that you've been able to 
find some witnesses or speak to some witnesses or you're still um, looking for witnesses? We're, we're looking for witnesses. We have had officers out in that neighborhood looking for witnesses, speaking to people who are in the area, doing a video canvas. Uh, we have been able to corroborate and confirm various aspects about what happened. However, we're still collecting evidence. We still need to speak to anybody else who has any information. Um, cases like this, while random, unprovoked, while we don't have a suspect in custody, are, 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 are very solvable. We just need to put in the work. We need to collect the evidence. And if there's anybody out there uh, who saw it, who has information, uh, we need them to come forward and tell us what they know. Right. And this happened at the corner of Nelson and Granville streets at around eight o'clock in the evening. So it's still light out. What about videotape evidence? I know there's a lot of video cameras around, right? Lots of video cameras, very high profile location, Granville Nelson, eight o'clock, busy summer night, still daylight, lots of people out. Uh, we know there's video evidence out there. We've looked at video evidence. Uh, we know there are people out there who saw what happened. Maybe they don't even know what they saw, but they saw some kind of confrontation um, or some, side of, some, some kind of altercation. Uh, if those people have not come forward, if we haven't yet tracked them down, if we haven't yet located them, we, we would like to speak to them and we'd ask them to come forward so that we can solve this. We don't, wa- we don't want cases like this. We, kn- we know cases like this strike fear in people when they hear about them. Yeah. In a case like this with a, a tourist from out of town, a story like this goes international. We don't want people to be fearful of coming outside. We want to be able to solve these cases. And we know that when people are fearful um, and they, uh, they decide maybe not to go out, not to come downtown, that leads to a further erosion of uh, that sense of public safety. So we want to do everything that we can to uh, uh, collect evidence to solve this case and to identify the person who uh, did this so that they can be held accountable. Could this be, last question for you, Steve, could this be a situation where maybe some people saw something, but maybe they don't realize they saw it? Because it sounds like this guy, he didn't realize he'd been stabbed right away. So it's not like he went down screaming at right at the moment, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, by his own account, he didn't realize what had been happening until uh, until later. He, he The sensation that he thought was that he'd been punched. And that's a very common sensation that people who have been stabbed uh, tell us that they feel. It's very, very consistent with what we know. So uh, if he didn't even realize what had happened, you can imagine there's maybe bystanders, somebody somebody walking by, somebody across the street who might have seen something, does, yeah. they, maybe doesn't know what they saw. But information that they, they have, their eyewitness evidence, could be helpful to our investigation. Those are the kind of people that we're trying to track down right now. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet, Mike. All right, let's talk about the single-use plastics ban set to kick in here in British Columbia. So this is the provincial ban that will be in place by December. So the government's saying to business, you got six months to get in gear here and get rid of any remaining inventory you have of these items. So they include plastic shopping bags. Of course, you've got disposable plastic knives and forks for takeout food, disposable food packaging, uh, takeout food packaging, including poly- polystyrene foam containers. I saw my son just last night. He was eating some uh, takeout pot stickers or dumplings or something in one of those little foam containers. Those will be gone by December. Now, here's the deal on this. Will this make a major difference here when it comes to plastic pollution? Because you think about it now. When you go to the grocery store, how often is the stuff that you're buying already wrapped in plastic wrap or plastic containers? Have a listen to this viral video here. Now, this is a Canadian comedian Dixon Delorme, very popular on social media, including TikTok. This one's rung up like a million views on TikTok. 
talking about the plastic bag ban. And what about all the other stuff you buy that's contained in plastic at the grocery store, though? Have a listen. So I just came from the grocery store, and let me see if I got this straight. I've got pasta wrapped in plastic, cheese wrapped in plastic, oats in plastic bags, wraps, plastic bag, yogurt, plastic container, laundry soap, plastic jug. Am I taking crazy pills? This world's gone crazy. Okay, so he thinks the world has gone crazy because they're banning plastic shopping bags, but does that not make at least a... A little bit of a difference? Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, David Clement, North American Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, David. Hello, Mike. Thank you for having me back. Thanks a lot for coming on. Do you think that he has a point there in that video that we played? Like, he go when you go to the grocery store, so many items that you're buying are already wrapped in plastic. I mean, you go to the meat aisle, everything's wrapped in plastic. If you go to the produce aisle, there's plastic bags everywhere you get for your produce. Mm-hmm. A lot of so many other products are already in plastic containers. So, I don't know, does he have a point there that phasing out plastic bags at the checkout really doesn't make much of a difference? Your thoughts? So he does have a point, but I think what might be missing is the reason why plastic is used in most of those circumstances. And the reason why it's used is it's a cost-efficient way of preserving food and doing so safely and effectively to limit food waste. And it's also much better for the environment. Uh, from a total emission standpoint. So an example would be, I mean, I'm a new father. Baby food is, is something that I buy now. Um, baby food in glass jars, which is obviously the alternative, is 33% worse for the environment because it's heavier. It, re- it requires a lot more energy to create uh, in comparison to plastic. And so the comedian you've cited there certainly has a point but it actually runs a little deeper uh, than that. Okay, it starts to become somewhat counterintuitive when you start thinking about this and digging a little deeper, like when you make a point that a glass container would be worse for the environment than a plastic container. Mm-hmm. Can you can you expand on that? Because I, I think a lot of people would think, whoa, yeah. whoa, wait, wait a second here. That doesn't make any sense. Plastic's got to be worse. Well, the, if you look at the weight of each package... You have to factor that in in terms of how it's transported, right? The the heavier the truck is, the heavier the baby food truck is, the more gas it burns. Um, And so if you look at it, that's just one variable in terms of those differences. Um, You then have to look at uh, the energy used to actually make the package. It requires less energy, usually less fossil fuels being burned. Um, to make the plastic version of some sort of container than it does a glass alternative. Um, and then, as, as the comedian mentioned, there are some items that we do not have an alternative between plastic and glass. You're not going to get your laundry detergent uh, liquid in a paper container. That's just not going to work. Uh, and so in many instances, plastic is the superior option from an environmental standpoint And there's a lot that can be done if we really care about plastic waste, which we certainly should, to actually retrieve this plastic, turn it into other uh, forms of plastic, and extend the life cycle down the road. Just because we have something in plastic right now 
doesn't mean it has to end up in a landfill. Right. And, you know, ending up in a landfill obviously is not desirable or even worse, maybe ending up in the ocean. And people may have heard about the big pl- the plastic island that's floating around out there in, yeah. in the Pacific Ocean. Let me play another clip here for you from Karen Wersig from the group Environmental Defense. And David, you know, Karen, you, you actually debated mm-hmm. her on the show here in the past on this issue. So let's have a, a listen to Karen here. And she makes the point in favor of of these single-use plastic bans to protect the environment. Here's what she has to say, then I'll get your thoughts. There's things we tend to take out and then they blow away because they're lightweight and plastic. So this is kind of the low-hanging fruit of getting some of the most harmful products out of our markets, but also out of nature. Okay, so she mentioned there the hazard of these lightweight plastic bags flying around, ending up in our waterways. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, if we look at the example of the the Pacific Garbage Patch, yeah. uh, most of that comes, like 98% or so of that comes from rivers in the developing world where they don't have the infrastructure um, or the means to actually collect garbage properly. Um, so it's not... It, the, the Pacific Garbage Patch is not a factor of of plastic bags blowing out of Vancouver grocery store parking lots and ending up in the Pacific. Um, It's also, I mean, a major factor here, which is an industry problem, is the fishing industry, the offshore fishing industry, discarding plastic nets. Um, Mm. that That is a significant contributor to plastic waste in the ocean. That's a serious problem. But I run, like, and everyone can relate to this. You go to, let's say, Starbucks, and you get a, a, a venti cold brew coffee in a large plastic cup, and you put they put a, pla- uh, a paper straw in it as if that is making any significant difference in terms of the overall plastic um, output per consumer. And then you got to factor in that that paper straw is about three times more expensive than a plastic straw. It's worse for the environment than a plastic straw. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a sec, wait a sec. How is a paper straw is worse than a plastic straw for the environment? Yeah, it's the same. How do you justify that? Yeah, it's the same reason why paper bags are much worse for the environment than single-use plastic bags. And the reasoning behind that, this is research from Denmark's Environment Ministry, is, again, when you look at the energy needed to produce these products, um, they look at 15 or 17 or so environmental factors. You have to reuse a paper bag about 43 times in order for it to be equal to a single-use plastic bag. I don't know about you, but I'm lucky to get that paper bag out of the trunk of my car, um, let alone be able to reuse it for anything else. But what I but, do, it, but it at least it decomposes, though, right? If it ends up in a landfill site. Uh, sure, yeah, if it ends up in a landfill site. But I think the the argument against the rather frivolous argument that they're lightweight and they blow away. I mean, the paper bags are also lightweight and they can blow away. And so I think my, my, my colleague, uh, Mrs. Miss Worsig, 
really just fails to see the fact that if you can collect these, um, let's call them problematic plastic items, there are a variety of solutions that exist. In fact, BC's ministry, environment ministry, is already on to this and already investing into the technologies that chemically depolymerize plastic and turn it into new products. And you can do that mm. for almost all plastic. It's just a matter of having the guts, in my opinion, to collect it and then use those chemical processes to repurpose it and turn it into um, into other products. And the people who right. do this create things we would never think of out of this out of these reused plastics. And it's it's quite an incredible initiative. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, let's talk about a trend in the business world now, and it's not a very pleasant one if you have ever been on the wrong end of the conference call here, and I'm talking about virtual layoffs. Now, lots of people have been laid off from their jobs. I mean, that's just a, a fact of life. But it was a time when if you lost your job, you'd have a face-to-face -face meeting with your boss, right? Quite often now, you're fired or laid off virtually in a conference call or an email, a text message, or a Zoom meeting is happening more and more often. You often see it in the tech world. Last fall, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, laid off 11,000 workers. CEO Mark Zuckerberg delivering the news over a remote video call. I've got Terry Compton standing by. This happened to her in a, in a Zoom meeting where she worked. But first, have a listen to this here now. This happened at Google as well. You may have heard about the people laid off at Google by email. Have a listen to former Google employee Paul Baker on how he got the news. So on the morning of January 20th, I actually woke up to one of my friend's text messages that said, hey, were you just laid off by Google? I responded saying, I don't know what you're talking about. So I went to my work laptop and lo and behold, when I opened it, I was forbidden. I was locked out. I was just shocked, just chilled to the bone to read this email that was sent to my personal email to say, you are no longer an employee. I had been at Google for four and a half years. My performance was great. This was something that kind of blew me out of the water. So these new virtual layoffs, I think, are very inhumane. They're very impersonal, and they don't treat you as an actual human being. Yeah, inhumane, lacks empathy, not treating you as a real human being. This has happened to a lot of people. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Terry Compton, and I'm very pleased to welcome Terry to the show. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, Terry, so let's tell, tell your story here. Now, you lost your job at a, a university where you worked for quite some time, and uh, so tell me about that. How long did you work at? You don't have to tell me the university if you don't want. If you want to tell me the university where you work, that's fine, but you don't have to. How long did you work there? 
Well, I was there almost 25 years. I worked uh, for all of that time with a great team of instructors. We worked in a, a very large profitable ESL program, which actually funneled students because we had an academic stream. We funneled students into the full-time uh, studies. So, you know, we made a lot of money for the university and then and then some. So um, we were all happy. Along came uh, covid and we were immediately uh, switched to online classes, which wasn't easy, but we were happy to do it. Uh, in fact, many of us had been suggesting for years that we offer online learning as an option. So uh, we did this fairly successfully for several months. And then one day we all received an email saying that there was going to be a Zoom call the next day, mandatory, no excuses. Well, we showed up and first we noticed that uh, we were muted. There was no chat feature. So... Then we saw that our director was there, but she wasn't visible and she didn't say a word during the four minute and 10 second meeting. So oh. <laughs> during this meeting, the second in command told us, OK, uh, you're all laid off uh, right after the meeting. You will receive your severance notice. And boom, then the screen went blank and that was it. So we were all at home, of course, wondering, did that really happen? <laughs> when I then opened up my email, I saw that my severance was completely incorrect. They said I had worked there for 11 years, not the 24 and a half. Well, then I talked to my colleagues and everyone had received the same 11-year severance notification, although some of them had worked there over 30 years. Wow. So, you know, we had to spend about six months having our union struggle with the university to convince them that it was illegal not to pay us based on when we started working. And in the end, we did get our correct severance, but it was a pretty stressful situation. And the fact that we weren't allowed to comment or ask questions was really quite tough. Wow, 24 years and it all ends in a four and a half minute Zoom call. That that is that's right. pretty that's right. pretty cold. Um, it is you, cold. And you know, the yeah. previous year I'd received an excellence in teaching award and been told how wonderful I was. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's here's something else. The very next day, because I guess they hadn't communicated effectively with other departments, the next day we all received an invitation to the instructor appreciation party. Oh no. Well <laughs> what happened to that? Was that canceled? A little slap in the head. <laughs> well, it still went on, but we weren't oh. invited. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. dear. I'm and then the icing on the cake was that uh, yeah. then when we had to look at our options in terms of pension, none of that information was correct. And in my case, it was great because I ended up being able to take a commuted pension and receiving far more money than I thought. But, you know, when you're trying to plan your life, especially for those people who had younger kids, you need yeah. accurate financial information from the employer that you've given your yourself full time to for, yeah. you know, decades. Of course. Speaking to Terry Compton and her experience being laid off in a, in a Zoom call. So when you first got that that notification, okay, everyone has to be on the Zoom meeting tomorrow. Did you have any suspicions you're you're about to be laid off or? Not a bit, because we had gone through SARS. We had gone through all kinds of ups and downs. We had revamped our program, something that, frankly, we instructors weren't really happy about because you may know that there's a trend in education where they want to take control away from instructors. So what they did was impose a curriculum, uh, which, in my opinion, was far, far 
more, oh, I don't know how to say it nicely, but it was just, it was garbage. Let's just say that. I think it was crap compared to what we used to create ourselves. However, you know, we're flexible, but I never thought they'd just shut it down. And I've got to tell you, because I haven't named the university, I hope I won't get in trouble. For me, this was just about union busting. Mm. Um, We know that um, a former dean had been heard to say, no instructor should ever have been hired full time. Um, but, you know, and so for the first eight years that I worked there and probably up to 15 for some other people, you would find out every 12 weeks whether you had a job for the next 12 weeks. So there was no there were no benefits. There was no security. But, you know, once you've done 30 or 40 12 week sessions in a row, you really are not a casual employee. So anyway, we did get hired. And then we unionized some years later. And I think they were really upset about that. And and so you know what when they when they laid us all off they were still advertising online programs and immediately after we were let go a bunch of young people some of whom had worked there on a casual or part-time basis those people were hired but they were hired as oh. casuals and you know according to the former um, memorandum with the union after a certain number of sessions they too should have been hired full time and what they did with the two people that i'm aware of is when they were up for full time status they switched their roles so that they wouldn't have to. So, you know, it just it just looks like bad faith and bad business to me. How many people were on that Zoom call? How many people were laid off that day? There were about 20 of us. 20, Formerly, okay. we had had a much bigger program, but uh, yeah, 20 people. So, so 20 people yeah. all on the same call, all laid off at the same time. And what was, like you've described a little bit of your reaction and what that felt like. What did What did your colleagues tell you? How did people feel and react to this? They were gutted. I mean, when you work with other instructors for that long, it's more like a family than it is a, a, a colleague situation. We helped each other with an awful lot of things. We're all different people. You know, you could argue that we're eccentric, but we always had each other's mm-hmm. backs. And we did after this happened. We stayed in touch for months as we worked with the union to get our proper severance. We worked with each other. We would have regular Zoom calls, ironically, to just support each other and listen to each other. Um, But, you know, it's a scary thing when you don't know if you will receive proper severance and you don't know, especially if you think you're coming towards the end of your career, what will you do? Um, Fortunately, we're very resourceful. So we did help each other, get each other Mm. work. Um, I had a a fairly lucrative part-time gig and I uh, withdrew from that so I could sort of spread the work around to some of my former colleagues. Um, Everybody has either found a new job or a new career. Or, and so, you know, they're out there doing wonderful things. But uh, to me, it's just a loss to the university because we gave everything we had to that place, everything we had to our students. And we had wonderful evaluations as a result. I don't know if you can hire casual people, especially in a field like education, and expect them to give their all. How, how do you think this could have been handled better? Like, do you think it should have been a little bit more human touch here, like face-to-face meeting? Like, how do you think it could have been done better? Well, because it was COVID, of course, they couldn't do it face-to-face. Mm. I get that. And I also understand that 
if you do it sort of one by one, there can start a, a, a cascade of phone calls and emails back and forth, which maybe makes everybody more upset. Although, you know, what, what do they care if they're going to get rid of us anyway? I just think that they should have had the courtesy and humanity to allow us to ask questions. And maybe when we then received our incorrect severance letters, we could have said, hey, you owe me three times this much, not or, tw- you know, twice this much, just to kind of work through things. Um, I feel that the refusal to allow any kind of a discussion um, was just, um, it, it, you know, it was kind of a gesture you might make with your with your middle finger. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I uh, had when I was hired there, I, I had an interview that lasted almost two hours. And I think everybody else did that. We went through our portfolios. We justified our teaching approach and they wanted to know what we were like as human beings. I think when you are rocking people's lives like this, you need to give them the courtesy of at least, I don't know, let's say half an hour of discussion and question taking for 20 people. I don't think that's unreasonable. And of course, it must be uncomfortable to take those questions and maybe the decision had to be made. But just the four minute and 10 second and then the screen goes dark. (laughs) That's that's cold. That is cold. Terry, I'm glad, though, that you bounced back. And it sounds like a lot of your colleagues were able to get other work, too. And I certainly appreciate you sharing this story today. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking about it. All right, welcome back. My next guest is Dean Goodine. Dean is a legend in British Columbia's TV and movie industry where he has had a long career as a props master. I recommend his book, They Don't Pay Me to Say No, My Life in Film and Television Props. Dean, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. That's very gracious. I like to think legend just means I'm old. So <laughs> I don't listen, man. I don't think I'm exaggerating at all. You've had an you've had an awesome career in this business, and I love the title of the book. By the way, they don't pay me to say no. Was that was that kind of your motto in getting things done on a movie or TV set? Early in my career, I realized that if I said no too many times in a gig economy, just starting out in my career, that they wouldn't call me back. So I would do everything in my power to always say yes. to a ridiculous request. So it was kind of a thing I had in the back of my mind going through. And so when it came time to title the book, I thought, well, that's our job. We have to say yes pretty much the whole time. So it felt right. Hey, Dean, let me ask you, before we get into the details of your book, which I, which I recommend to the, to the listeners here, because you've had such an unbelievable career in the, in this business. Let me ask you about a a couple of, um, Top of mind issues, okay? So the the last time you were on the show, we talked about the tragic, uh, fatal shooting of cinematographer Alina Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust. And uh, listeners will know, of course, actor Alec Baldwin was originally charged in that case. The charges were dropped there. But there, there are still charges continuing against the armorer, the guy who was in charge of the prop gun on this on the, that film set, and that is continuing. Let's uh, briefly play a clip here for from Andrea Reeb, who is the prosecutor on this case on the Rust film set. Let's listen. This set was really unsafe. 
It was not being run well. They were not doing the things that they should have been doing in order to have a safety conscious and, and certainly with guns, a gun conscious movie set. There were lots of markers along the way where somebody should have said, this is not safe. Something needs to be done. Okay, Dean, you've worked on a lot of movie sets, of course, where they had, you know, gun, and we call this a prop gun, but this is a real gun, right? Like, you guys use real guns on the sets of these films and TV shows, right? That is correct. Yeah. So uh, some of them might be replicas of a similar pattern to the Colt made by another company, but they are real firearms. Uh, a full-auto or semi-auto firearm is incapable of firing a live round through it because it's been... Um, made to fire blanks only so it's been converted to fire blanks only but the revolvers they were using on rust would fire a real blank a real bullet yeah and we're we're hearing that there's still a a charge going forward here against the armorer in this case who's been charged with involuntary manslaughter there was another charge just approved in this case and evidence tampering in, in the case so this guy is in a lot of trouble what does an armorer do on a film set well, an armor is hired by the property master. So when I when I I just finished the movie, that was my first blank full blank fire movie since the Rust tragedy. So I hired the armor. The armor works under my responsibility of the firearms that we choose for the film. And then what the armor is responsible for is maintaining and making sure those firearms are always in a safe condition and on the set. The armor, in conjunction with myself, set all the safe firing zones whether a shot can be fired safely and if it's not able if we're not able to do it safely then we'll do a post-production muzzle flash and move on to the next setup but for the most part the armor's job is to keep the crew safe keep that firearm in working condition and ensure that all our safety measures that we've set in place for decades and decades are followed to the nth degree yeah, and actor Alec Baldwin was originally charged in this case, and we've discussed that before, and I'm sure he's greatly relieved that the charges were were subsequently dropped. But let me play a short clip here of Alec Baldwin, because this, this really jumped out at me here. And uh, listen to how he talks about how he handled this particular gun on the set of this movie. Let's listen. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. But I have dreams about this constantly now. I wake up constantly where, where guns are going off. You know, one of the things that jumped out at me there, Dean, in that quote, he said he would he would never point a gun at someone and pull the trigger, even if he was assured it was a prop gun or there was a blank there. Uh, don't you have, like, when you're on a movie set and you're filming a... You're filming a scene with a firearm. Don't you? Aren't you? Don't you have to pull the trigger anyway to sort of set off the blank? Well, in the case of this this uh, particular time, they were just rehearsing for camera position. And when Alec drew the revolver from a cross draw shoulder holster, he was cocking the revolver as he drew, and they were lining up for a shot of the hammer being cocked. Now, I've worked on enough westerns for your listeners, Unforgiven open range, mm. the assassination of Jesse James or some of my films. The What happens a lot of times when an actor is doing a quick draw out of a holster, even though they don't uh, think they're doing it, they pull with their finger on the trigger. And with a single action revolver, which is what uh, the 1870s and 1880 revolvers were, single action means you can cock it, but it won't fire unless you pull the trigger. So if his finger was on the trigger as he drew, he 
would have cocked the hammer with no intention of having that hammer drop and fire. And that's probably what happened. But the reality of that whole sequence was all the safety steps that are taken to take a firearm from the vault of the prop truck and all the way through to that filming floor were not followed to the point right. of a live round was in that in that yeah. firearm. Bulletin number one in Hollywood is no live ammo on set. And in right. Canada, exactly the same. My license does not allow me to have live ammo on a film set. So the fact that that happened, every single stop and check along the way, they just had to do one of the five steps along the way to presenting a firearm to a set and nothing would have happened. They would have caught it. We continue to follow that case there. What a, what a tragic case that is. Let me ask you real quickly, we'll, we'll take a break and then talk about your book here on the other side, Demon. Let me ask you real quickly about the other story in the headlines right now in the BC and film, uh, TV and film business. And that, of course, is the str- actors and writers strike in Hollywood that's affecting productions here in Canada. Let's listen to actress Fran Drescher here, famous for her role as the nanny on TV. She's now a union leader. Have a listen. The jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. Okay, it seems like this strike may drag on. It's affecting a lot of people, putting a lot of people out of work. Dean, is it, is it, uh, how much of an impact is this having in BC right now? It's huge. It's actually, uh, it started long before last week's SAG strike. I I work with the same crew for 10 years now, and we finished a show together in February, and most of them have not worked since February. I was lucky I got on an indie film in Calgary, and I just finished it two weeks ago. But I'm a very optimistic person at best. And I actually don't see the end of this. I don't see the resolution. Usually I'm very analytical and can process it after this is my fifth decade in the industry. And so I've seen a lot of ups and downs and and things that have gone off the rails, but I've always sort of been able to sort of look beyond and find an end. But unfortunately, the CEOs who run these media conglomerates now are the same people that broke the industry. Like, so I don't know if they're capable of fixing it because they broke it and the system is broken. Uh, the industry has grown tremendously in the last 10 years. And those of us have been around a long time, Mike, have thought, when is this bubble going to burst? Because it, I can't see how this is sustaining itself. And if I was a theater movie theater chain owner, I'd be pissed because I think at, at the end of the day, they somehow have through the pandemic thought if they just dumped everything on the television, that that would be the end game of all this entertainment and media. And in reality is they totally shot themselves in the foot other than top gun and maybe Oppenheimer and a few films that'll get people back into the seats. A lot of the shows are putting out are just not worthy of a family spending $150 to go to mm-hmm. a movie and they can watch it at home for eleven ninety nine on the weekend. All right. Got a few more minutes now with Dean Goodine, the legendary props master in TV and movies in, in British Columbia. His, his book is They Don't Pay Me to Say No, My Life in Film and Television Props. So, Dean, we got like five minutes here. We're barely going to scratch the surface of this incredible career that you've had. But let's, let's see how we can do here. You, you have worked with some big stars. You worked on some big, big movies. You mentioned Unforgiven, for example, one of the greatest Westerns of all time. What was it like working on that film? 
I think that film set me up for the rest of my career, Mike, because I learned so much on that set about just having a prepared script, what that can do to a film company. If you have a finished script when you start pre-production and you go on to set and you know there's going to be no changes, there's not 15 producers standing around coming up with really bad ideas. It was such a well-oiled machine. And so I carried that movie with me. I still carry that movie with me in everything I do, the way I present myself on set, the way I do things. It was such a quiet, professional, well-run movie that I think all people could learn something from that one that we're yeah, in this industry. It's absolutely one of my favorite films for sure. And I, I just must have been amazing to be on that set. Did your, did your wife win a what, nominated for an Oscar on that one? Is that right? Yeah, she was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, she's still at this point in time, the only Canadian woman to have been nominated for an Oscar for set decoration. Uh, there have been some men that have won and have been nominated, but she is she was the first Canadian woman to be nominated and still is the first Can only Canadian woman to be nominated for an Oscar. We got to go. I'll give you a quick Gene Hackman story. Okay. So, because uh, you love that movie. So the yes. very first day that Gene Hackman came to Big Whiskey, the town, to play little Bill Daggett, I was standing there with Eddie Iona, my prop master. I had, we had his gun, his badge, his belt. And Gene looked at Clint and said, I don't really understand how to play this character. And Clint is a man of few words. And he just looked at Gene and said, and at the time, the Rodney King meeting had just happened in L.A. And L.A. had a... Uh, chief of police named Daryl Gates. And Daryl was really charming in the media, but the LA Police Department at the time was pretty rough. And so he said, I kind of see you like Daryl Gates. And that's all he said. And Gene goes, I get it. And then hmm. fast forward two years later, we're at the Oscars. We're at the governor's ball after the award ceremony. And Jan and I are sitting there with, with our boss, Henry Bumstead, the production designer of Vertigo, To Kill a Mockingbird in this thing. And Gene comes over and puts his Oscar on the table and says, I just want to thank you guys for helping me win this. I thought that is the full circle of an actor for me because wow. I saw him the minute he arrived and asked how to play the character. And I watched him walk off with the Oscar. Wow. That's, that's amazing. What an amazing film that is. L let's talk about some of the other movies that you've been involved with here, Dean. And tell me about um, the film in Inception. Uh, and oh. I know that was a, a critical one for you too, right? Yeah, I was just uh, I was just prop guy number five. I was working on a show in Vancouver and I got called to go help them on the Alberta snow unit. And at first I couldn't go. But then my show got shut down for a few weeks. And so I went and uh, I get there at five in the morning. It's day one of filming. The entire cast are there. Leonardo, Elliot Page, uh, Ken Watanabe. And the scene was they're all at the top of this mountain, Fortress Mountain, in their skis. And I was hired to run the ski shop. So I get there and I'm riding up in the snowcat because the prop master wanted all of us on top of the mountain. And uh, a friend of mine, Shelly, who was working in props, looked at me and said, oh, by the way, Leonardo has two pairs of skis. If it's too cold, he'll wear a slightly larger boot. And I, for some reason, I thought about it and forgot about it. So we get up to the top, throw all the ski stuff behind a berm. We get everybody ready, the helicopters in the air, and a Nolan set is a fast set. There's nobody sitting down in director's chairs waiting. It's like when the sun was up, we were going to film. So we're getting everybody into their skis and Leonardo goes to step in his skis and nobody knows me. I'm this, like my first hour on the movie. And he goes to step in his skis and his bindings aren't working. And the prop master looked at me and he knew I was hired to work in the ski shop. And he said, hey, can you adjust those bindings? So I'm kneeling down in the snow, Chris Nolan, there's a helicopter, the entire crew, it felt like we're staring at me. 
And I remembered Shelly's line in the snowcat. Hey, he's got another pair of skis. So I looked up and said, he has another pair of skis. I know where they are. So I go running behind the berm to grab the skis and I bring them back and I put them down. All I kept thinking was, please let this work. Please let this work so I can go back to being anonymous. And Leonardo clicked into his skis, click, click. And the prop master looked at me and he says, I don't know your name, but you're not leaving the set. So I spent the next nine days on top of the, I lost my cushy ski shop job down at the bottom of the mountain. And I spent nine days on top of the best nine days on set since Unforgiven. Wow. I mean, a Nolan set is a fast moving top pros in every department. It was just really an inspiration to be around all those people. Yeah, Chris Nolan, boy, what a what a, a tremendous filmmaker he is, and of course, all the hype for the Oppenheimer film coming out coming out too. That is, must have been a pressure filled situation. So, what was what was Leonardo DiCaprio doing all this time? He's just standing there watching you try to get this right. Yeah, he was just standing there quietly looking down at me as I'm <laughs> kneeling in the snow with my Leatherman, going, "I haven't adjusted bindings for 18 years." So I'm just in that moment, and then when he clicked into his skis, it was just like a great relief to all of us that the shot continued props is about that. And there are many stories in the book about that, the, the hair raising moments. I wrote the book as a story book. Um, I, I wasn't going to put the book out. And then my wife said, after the rough tragedy, you have to put it out because people need to understand what props does so that the mistakes that were made on rust aren't repeated. Mm. Uh, so when I, when I got the, I sent it out to some publishers, got some great rejection letters. I, I realized they write really nice letters in Canada when they don't want to publish you. So uh, I put it <laughs> okay. out. So I put it out. Yeah. Go ahead. Dean, I must, I must jump in there. We could fill a, an hour here talking. We just scratched the surface of your career. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished there in, in TV and movies and, and uh, much success with the book. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Really great. Just of you to have me on. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.